Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, a traditional Dublin Bay sailing boat still being hand-built in the capital, some tales from Waterford Harbour and a trip on the Liffey from the archives. The Mermaid is a traditional sailing dinghy in Dublin Bay and over the years hundreds of them have been racing every week come all weathers. They're still hand-built by a couple of wooden boat builders using crafts which have been handed down through the generations. Connor Sweetman met one mermaid builder. Dublin Bay mermaids are at the heart of Rush Sailing Club. These 17-foot clinker-built dinghies are all handmade by the people who sail them. One of these people is Enda Weldon. Sailing and boat building are in Enda's blood. His father was a founding member of Rush Sailing Club and Enda has fond memories of helping his dad to build the first mermaid in the Weldon family fleet. Oh, late 60s, early 70s, my father and another man in Rush built mermaids. Of course, I used to be down there to get out of doing homework at night, giving them a hand. Mixing the glue for the old cascamite glue, etc., and uh, cooking the, the tea on the Bunsen burner. I was, you were sent to the shop for a pound of broken biscuits every night, sure. It was better than going to school, it was better than doing homework, you know. The main thing you walked into that was the smell of timber. The smell of timber and the smell of glue, and the smell of the gas, the Bunsen burner. That's the smell we get when we walk in. It's a different glue we use now, but you do get that smell when you walk in when you're building. It's the smell of timber. Uh, working with timber. It's gorgeous, yeah. In 2012, Enda, along with his brother Anthony and their friend Paddy Archer, launched three new Dublin Bay mermaids. The project took two years to complete. I visited Enda in his workshop to learn about mermaids, how they're built, and why he builds them. So just, just describe where we are here, Enda. Um, yeah, this is a, a loft shed that we had built. Um, we just decided it'd be ideal, it's insulated, be ideal for uh, mermaids. The roof was ground low for it to be able to brace them to. See the, all the frames there? Yeah. They're the moulds. There's uh, six moulds to each boat. So we gathered up a number of sets of moulds there was around the country. Some boats were built off them in the 50s, 60s, off the same moulds. So where, where did you get them? How did you source them? Um... Just the lads we know, yeah. Mm. They had them stuck up somewhere and they're all glad to get rid of them. So <laughs> now, we, now yeah. you're stuck with them. Yeah. Enda had built a mermaid before, back in the mid-90s. So he knew it was hard work, but he loved the process. In fact, as soon as he finished his first boat, he was itching to start again. He helped other people in the club with their projects, but it wasn't until 2010 that he thought that the time was right to build his second boat. Uh, strictly because we could uh, get our hands on beautiful timber. Really? You couldn't get it years ago. There's a guy in uh, the UK now brings in beautiful silver spruce and uh, he takes it in from... His father lives on Vancouver Island, right beside the big sawmills. And he's able to go in and pick the fillets of beautiful timber, uh, really, really tight grain, up to 60 grains uh, an inch. It's, it's uh, 
I think out of the three mermaids, there's 74 planks or 76 planks or whatever. I think there's one knot shows and it's in my boat yeah. at the timber. How did you get we to know your man? Um, on the internet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A guy called uh, Stone's Boatyard in, in, uh, down in Salcombe. And he just brings, he uh, builds boats called Salcom Dredgers. So he uh, mines a whole fleet of them for all the gentry in London. They come down and race them and he mines them in a shed, a big shed, something like 36 of them. And uh, he has them all ready for them. They just come down, step onto them and in the summer and uh, go sailing and There's racing. The poor old farmers have to build them there themselves. <laughs> <laughs> the Dublin Bay Mermaid was designed by John B. Kearney in 1932 for the Dublin Bay Sailing Club. These 17-foot, half-decked boats are clinker-built. Clinker-built is a method of boat building where the edges of the hull planks overlap each other. This is in contrast to carvel-built, where the hull planks are laid edge-to-edge as opposed to overlapping. In the shed, Enda, Anthony and Paddy first built frames for the boats. Then they added each plank one by one until the hull was finished. The three of them, uh, yeah, we were built. See these braces? Each boat was built under them. Yeah. Oh, I see them there now, yes. It was actually perfect layout. We were able to do the... Uh, we set up a bench along the, 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 the top oh, here. Oh, I see you have the, the plans here. The plans we had up on the wall, which is always very look. handy, yeah. These are copies of the originals from the 1930s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So show me the parts here. So what's that there? That's also a plan of the mast. Okay. Uh, we still use timber masts in the Mermaids. There's not many boats use timber masts now. Um, and this is, what, this is the shape of the mould that you're working with, was it? Yep, yeah. that's one of the moulds. And there's the, that's, see the way, uh, what it's called, clinker built? It laps over the other and you drive a, a roof. And uh, it's just, they could build them lighter and they built them onto, they, they're just roofed through uh, uh, little oak ribs. We used to steam them to put them in. All right. As well, yeah. You've seen them here? Yeah, you've seen them on site, yeah. Even though they were only building three boats, there was never just three people in the shed. Everyone in Rush Day and Club got involved, especially when it came time to put in the ribs. We used to have what we call a ribbing party when we were building them years ago. When we were ribbing a boat, you need about eight or nine guys around. And uh, you'd steam them, you'd have a couple in the boat and another work in the steaming them in the pipes, another couple handling them and holding the dowels outside for, and ribbed, ribbed them in. It's all sort of a organised chaos to get them all done in a night. But, yeah, uh, yeah it is great crack. It is. Uh, funny thing, when I built the first boat, I was doing it on my own yeah. up in the house. And sure, I used to be getting up at three o'clock in the morning, um, Sunday morning, because the kids were young at the time and you, before you'd be going to mass and all the rest of it. You'd get up and get a few hours done before that, or you could be up till three o'clock at night. It was you're so motivated. Yeah. Uh, it 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 it's all consuming, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you start that project, and you think you're great at it, and you just you know you're you're motivated, and you just keep going, and mm. you can't get enough of it actually. Mm. And uh, and if someone in the club was coming up to you and said, "Look, I'm thinking about doing this," what what advice would you give them? Number one, I think you should go out and learn to sail in them first. Yeah. And that motivates him to go in and build one. Yeah, yeah. Then he has an idea of what he wants to achieve in, in the, the little quirky shapes that you're trying to get into them, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so when you're actually putting it together, are you, like, imagining absolutely. what this means when it's on the water? Every plank really? you put on, you're 
lying under it, you're lying behind it, you're lying in front of it. People think you're crazy. The way you're looking at it, you're trying to imagine, um, is there a nice line coming up in this boat, you know? I don't know. Uh, and yes, at the end of the day, it's just a mermaid. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it was just a mermaid, Enda, Anthony and Paddy spent two years working on the boats. Every evening, Enda would walk up the steps to the loft, take in the smell of timber and get to work. Just, just the furniture head completely. You walk into that, uh, for no matter what's happening at work mm. or anything else, you walk in that door there and the three boats there and your mind is just in a different world. It's the same with sailing and you get on the boat and once you get off the slipway, you're in a different world. And that, to me, that's, everybody should have a little of that, you know. Yeah, it does that, yeah. Yeah. Yes. We go have a look at the boat. Yeah. We walk back down the steps, across the yard, and into the garage. So here she is. Yeah. Still looking glorious. Um, we, we, uh, the whole thing with them, years ago, you'd have to varnish them every year. And uh, they were kept in moorings. And of course, if you get the sun, the sun and the frost is the biggest enemy of varnish. I always remember every year my father making me get up on the, hey, you get up under the deck there now with that brush. <laughs> that was your job every year, uh, varnishing way up underneath. Show me the different parts of the boat. So. Yep, this is, um, there's the hull, there's the, the, the planking I'm talking about. There's the, the only knot in all three boats. There. <laughs> yeah, all of them. There's the ribs, see the ribs? Yeah. That's the rib cage of the boat, that's the strength of the boat. Yeah. They're done with white oak, American white oak. Oh. So there's 3,229 rivets in uh, a mermaid. Some of them talk about gluing the lands of the boat, where the, the planks land on each other. We wouldn't do that because I think it can add to cracks. You glue at the ends, all right, where, the, where she's landing at the front of the, and at the transom. Transom is the back of the boat, yeah. And uh, you glue there, just yeah. at the end. And the plank, you start down at the keel, put your force plank on, and then you come up. All right. Let's see. Just have lying under, as I said. <laughs> Look up to see these magic shapes that you're looking for. You know. The three boats entered the water for the first time on Saturday, seventh of July, two thousand and twelve. Naming the boats was left at the last minute, with Enda choosing Mayhem for his. Paddy chose the name Maybe, and Anthony called his boat Ariel. With COVID restrictions, racing has been on hold for the last year. But Enda's looking forward to getting out again, hopefully in the summer. So this year, let's hope it'll change anyway, you know. We're supposed to be heading for Phoenix again this year. So touch wood. Touch wood, exactly. And touch beautiful wood, actually. <laughs> uh, we're hoping to get down there yeah. uh, this year. See if that goes, you know. Yeah. Long live the mermaid, please. Connor Sweetman with Mermaid Builder Enda Weldon. Very occasionally over the past year, I've been dipping into some of RT Radio's oldest archives and have come up with a few gems with the help of our archivist Rob Canning. Tonight, we're on the River Liffey in the 1950s on a barge transporting Guinness downriver for export. Well, how many of these barrels have we aboard now? They hold 300 hogsheads. That's about 100 tons of beer. And what does that work out in gallons? Something uh, enormous, I think. Each hogshead holds 52 gallons. What would that oh, be? Right. About 15,000. Yes. It's a very large cargo, anyhow. 
And you work that uh, on the tides. Can you work every tide? We work for about two hours before high water and about two hours after high water for about an hour and a half each time. I see. That must mean a lot of intensive work in uh, yes, well, they, for a very short time. Right? They try to start the morning with the barge full at yes. the wharf and then come back on the next tide Here under the empty on the bridge. I don't want to get my block knocked off. I'll be all right down here. Yes. Right. Now you can hear them. I suppose noise, the exhaust can be heard off the so bridge now. So they've dropped the funnel. Yes. And somewhere in this there's a ventilator leading right up into the road, I think. Oh. A hole. I've seen the smoke rising up. And so I hear the traffic uh, rumbling overhead right now. Then you hear a tram grinding over yeah. too, I think. The place is filling up with smoke from uh, the funnel. Yes. Out again, the sunshine. and no damage done to our heads anyhow, but it is, I can see that uh, it must be limited uh, on the state of high water, whether you can get through or yeah. not. Yes, I think we had about a foot to spare of the helmsman's yes. head that oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> and how many have you in this fleet? We have six barges. Six barges, all the same type. All the same type. And all uh, working like mad, I suppose, when the occasion arises. When the tide fits, when, yes. When the tide fits. The Guinness barge on the River Liffey back in the 1950s. And I'm glad to say that many of those six barges mentioned are still going on our inland waterways, lovingly restored by their new owners. Andrew Doherty is a writer, local historian and former fisherman in Cheek Point in County Waterford. He's just written a book entitled Waterford Harbour Tides and Tales. It recounts some of the history and folklore of the harbour. Andrew told me how he came to write Tides and Tales. Well, I'm in my 50s now, and uh, I started fishing, I suppose, uh, from Cheek Point in the, the family punt for salmon, probably when I was seven or eight. So I started commercial fishing then when I finished school at 18, and I worked at that for 15 years, and um, I kept it up part-time. And it's only in the last few years, really, that with the salmon fishing stopping, uh, in 2006 and the eel fishing in 2007, um, I went to college, studied uh, community uh, development work. In 2014, I started writing a regular blog, uh, just trying to record some of the history and the stories of the community that I come from, which is Cheek Point here in County Waterford. And not alone was I myself a fisherman, but my father and his father before him, but they also were at sea. So there's a huge, I suppose, well of stories related to the to the maritime sector here in the village. And that's really what I draw on in the books that I write. What jumps out for you when you read about Waterford and Wexford harbours is how important they were to the commercial life of the whole country going back through the centuries. Yeah, uh, we know obviously the Vikings came into Waterford, but obviously there was there was people trading in and out of Waterford before then. But it was really the Norman era that had started to flourish. They used their own contacts throughout Europe and Waterford became sort of a hub uh, for the merchant class and um, a, a huge level of trade developed uh, between Waterford and the continent. And really it was, it's about location. Like it's so close to Europe and it's your first stop off point. So that gave it a huge advantage. And then another huge advantage it had was with the, the the development of the Newfoundland cod fishery. So it was 
basically it was ships from the southwest of England, but they called to Waterford uh, for provisions, but they also came for what were called green men, which were, it could have been farmers, laborers, it was just men who were willing to go aboard those vessels, sail to Newfoundland and fish for, for the season or maybe even two seasons out there before they came home a few bob in their pocket. And that gave that that really brought on Waterford as well in terms of just how commercially uh, important it was. Even today, Newfoundland has a huge connection with Waterford-Wexford area because of the fishing links. We've we've hosted visits here in, in the harbour with, with people from Newfoundland. And it's bizarre when you're talking to them because you can hear, they use similar phrases they to do. us. But the accents are very similar as well. And even one of the fishermen, when he was here with me, we went for a drive and we went to Passage East. And uh, I was explaining that Balahack is on the opposite side. And he started laughing. And I said, what's so, what's so funny? And he said, you know what? He said, when we get out of a taxi, when we're driving in a taxi in, the, in St. John's in Newfoundland, if I want to get out on the right-hand side of the road, I say, leave me off on the Balahack side. <laughs> And there's no Balhack in New- Newfoundland. No, and he never knew where the phrase came from. But if he wants to get out on the right-hand side of the road, he says, leave me off on the Balhack side. Your studies come out in a very light and readable way in your book, Waterford Harbour Tides and Tales. When you mentioned them picking up around those times, green men, you have quite a chapter about press gangs and how they swept oh up men for the service in Nelson's Navy. Really, that was born out of um, a, a yarn my father used to tell. And it, he first told it to me when we were out fishing. And uh, we, we were drifting one night in the dark, uh, just below Cheek Point, between Cheek Point and Passage East. And another boat was approaching. And he just turned to me and said, well, if this was na- the Napoleonic Wars, I'd have to throw you over the side to keep you safe. And when when the, the boat was gone and uh, we got a chance to talk about it, I said, why, why would you throw me over the side of the boat? Uh, so he just mentioned press gangs. And with that, then he, he, he launched into a yarn. And it was about this fella in Chief Pine called Walsh, uh, who, when he'd get drunk in the pub in the Shore Inn in Chief Pine, he would mumble into his pint, I should have went with the press gang. What amazed me reading your accounts of the press gang is that they didn't really have an awful lot of authority on shore. They could kidnap somebody, but you could put put up a fight. Well, that was the whole point of the the shoreside press. When you went ashore, you were really putting yourself in harm's way. So they preferred to come, come across ships at sea or even at anchor in the harbour. And I found accounts of them, you know, coming aboard boats that were actually going to Newfoundland to go to the fishery and seizing men aboard those ships and taking them onto the onto the Royal Navy uh, frigates. Uh, but they also interfered with ships that were passing outside of the hook and sailing along um, the, the south coast here. Uh, they'd literally just raid the vessels, take the crew off of them. And um, and basically, they were impressed into the service of the Navy and they would have to serve for seven years. Where the pay uh, and it, the food and the conditions were worse and it was dangerous. Well, yeah, but then, of course, there were opportunities, I suppose, as well. I mean, the, the chap Bransfield that discovered South the Antarctica region uh, and who's been commemorated in Cork, they're only really so there were opportunities as well, I suppose, for people. There were quite a few stories in your book with war 
maritime themes. One of them is the salvage of a U-boat UC-44 that sank in the harbour. An amazing story. Uh, and it's still uh, a bit a bit of a mystery, really. Uh, UC-44, August 1917. It was set in uh, a minefield between uh, Creighton Head and Hook Head. And uh, as the... As the in, the, the deployment system was basically the mines were stored forward of the U-boat. Uh, the U-boat would submerge just to be sure that they couldn't be seen. And they would then drop back on the tide and drop out these mines one after the other. And they had this security system with it in that the mine would fall to the bottom. A soluble plug would dissolve and it would release a chain that would bring the mine up into the water. Uh, now, as this was happening, one of the mines either jammed or the soluble plug dissolved more quickly and the mine floated up as the as the U-boat was reversing back and it struck it uh, and the U-boat sank. So it plunged to the bottom of the harbour, but three of the crew, including the commander of the vessel, managed to get out through the coning tower and get to the top. So they swam up through the 90 feet of water. They swam to the top, which was an incredible feat in itself. But the second thing that was incredible was that it was heard in Dunmore East and some fishermen uh, went out in search and actually managed to find one of the crew, uh, Captain Lieutenant uh, Tevin Jonas, who was the commander of the vessel and brought him to shore. And that triggered an, uh, an immediate response from the, from the Allied forces in that they were very keen to get their hands on one of these U-boats. And uh, they brought in a salvage team uh, and, and worked over a period of weeks to locate the boat, uh, bring her to the surface and get her into Dunmore East where it was gone through and all the uh, intelligence that could be gathered from the vessel was taken off of it. And then she was brought back out and scuttled again in the harbour. But we don't know, and you don't know, even though you went and researched and found all the names of the men who were on that U-boat, you don't know what happened to them, what happened to their bodies. Well, as I said, Ted and Jones survived, and he actually, he, he survived and he served in the Second World War, and um, he only died in the 1960s, apparently. Uh, but all the other crew died. Uh, a number of the crew were, were found in the vessel when she was brought into Dunmore East, uh, but the Royal Navy brought them out and gave, buried them at sea. They weren't buried on land. It's a, an extraordinary to- tale. But there's another ship then that really interested me in your book. It actually is on the cover of Tides and Tales, the Port Lauria. A dredger, mm-hmm. but kind of beautiful in her own way. Absolutely. Uh, she was a beautiful, just the design of her was very beautiful. She was built in Dublin, the Dublin Dockyard Company, and um, built in 1907. But when I was a child, actually when I was a teenager in the 1980s, she was still actually working in Waterford, uh, a steam-driven vessel. And the, the buckets that descended down into the river were on chains, and you'd hear the rattle of the chains from the quay very clearly. And there was a lovely toot out of the whistle, a steam whistle that used to blow when they were about to move. And uh, we, locally in Waterford, we call her the mud boat, or, or we called her the mud boat. Um, and um, the, I, I think everyone who 
has any connection with Waterford or has ever been to the city in that era would have known her very well. Um, a good employer uh, kept, the, kept the keys maintained at that time anyway of the mud that used to deposit along the, along the banks. And um, then, of course, they'd bring it away out to sea and dump it uh, out off of the hook. Um, the, the vessel still, she's still there. She's in, in uh, uh, Wexford at this point in time, down in Salt Mills. But she's we, rusting away into, yeah, the, into the ground. The way she ended was kind of sad for a ship that had such long service. It was quite, um, it was a difficult time. She, she broke down. It was quite costly to repair um, there was talks of selling her. Um, some people wanted to buy her locally and turn her into a museum. Uh, but I suppose in the 80s in Waterford, you know, money was tight and it was a difficult enough, um, difficult enough process to, to carry out. Eventually she was sold, but she was sold to a man in Wexford and he had plans for her as far as I'm aware. And she, she, she went away, but unfortunately those plans were never realised. So she's just now a rusting hulk down in Salt Mills, as I said. And um, it's it's a real sad sight. And anyone who has any interest in Waterford's maritime history is, um, you know, it pains them to look at her in the condition she's in at the moment. You have several interesting pictures and her history in your book, Tides and Tales. Where, Andrew, can we get it? It's published by the History Press. It's published by the History Press and it's distributed by Eason's and I suppose like it's available in, in, in all good bookshops. And of course, most bookshops now also have an online service for the time of the restrictions. Andrew Doherty and his book Waterford Harbour, Tides and Tales. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rt.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rt.ie. If you're lucky enough to be anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.